Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we hear from Washington about the increasing anxiety about the war in Afghanistan and from Afghanistan itself about concerns for women's rights once NATO leaves. But we start with China, where there are increasing signs of a battle for power at the top of the Communist Party. The annual National People's Congress ended with a bombshell, the announcement that Bo Chi Lai, the controversial head of the party in the vast city of Chongqing, had resigned. Mr Bo had national ambitions, but he was also controversial because of his popular style and his use of Maoist slogans. The outgoing Prime Minister, Wen Jiaobao, had even warned the People's Congress of the danger of a new cultural revolution in China and had pointed specifically to events in Chongqing. Joining me on the line from Beijing to discuss all this is our bureau chief there, Jamil Andalini. Jamil, what do you make of the uh, resignation of Bo Chi Lai? Does it mean that the power struggle's over? Um, first of all, I don't think it's a resignation. It's, uh, it definitely appears to be a dismissal. He said as recently as last Friday, that he was not going to resign, he hadn't offered his resignation, and that he was not under any sort of investigation. So it's clearly a dismissal, and now the most important thing is whether he'll be charged and what he'll be charged with. And that will determine the next stages of the power struggle. It's almost certain that power struggles will continue. And partly we can see that from the person who has replaced Borshilai. The person who's replaced him is someone from his own faction. So clearly there's still factional fighting that's going to continue. What broadly defines the factions? Is it pure personality or is there something ideological going on as well? It's, it's really difficult to define the, the factions. If you talk to different analysts, they'll define them in different ways. Um, one of the best analysts I speak to is a person called uh, Chung Lee. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a real expert in um, Chinese elite politics. He defines the factions broadly as populists and elitists, the elitists being generally the children of senior officials themselves and the populists having risen up through the ranks and relying more on consensus building and people in their own power networks. There is some ideology involved. Some people in the party believe more in more balanced growth, more uh, looking after the poor, closing the income gap, and others believe purely in, in just letting the economy steam ahead and a more laissez-faire uh, approach. And what about these warnings from Wen Jiaobao about a new cultural revolution? What did he mean by that, and what was he uh, warning against, essentially? I mean, pr- presumably that was aimed at Bo Chi Lai. That was directly aimed at Bo Chi Lai because um, Bo's Policies in Chongqing, where he's the, well, he was until today the party secretary, um, have been likened to a new cultural revolution. It's a, it's a uh, common refrain we hear when people are criticizing Bo Lai. So the comments were clearly aimed at that, but they're also a warning about the destabilizing effects of, of power struggles. And one very important thing that Wen Jiabao said yesterday was 
that power structure and the way that the government is run needs to be changed because this infighting is extremely damaging to the credibility of the party. Yes, I mean, is there a chance that this political struggle will will move beyond a sort of battle between the elite and turn into something that has a sort of broader resonance in society and actually destabilizes China? Well, there's always that chance, that possibility. Um, when you talk to um, you know real sinologists and experts, a lot of them will say that the biggest danger for for China is uh, you know, for, for the current system is a is a serious split in the party. That was what you had in 1989. You had serious disagreements and splits at the very top of the party, and it meant that when student protests broke out, there was no consensus on how to deal with them, and the protests spiraled out of control until one part of the party decided to call in the military and shoot people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if China was to experience perhaps a, a, you know, a, a really a serious slowdown in the economy and then saw wide-scale street protests, uh, it's unclear that they have the consensus and the unity at the top to deal with them. You know, they, they might not have any consensus on how to deal with, with a situation like that, and that would be obviously extremely destabilizing. Mm. And is there a faction pushing for something, you know, that we in the West would call democratic reform? You know, we've seen these village-level elections in Wukan, which I know you've covered very closely. Is that a trend that's, you know, has, has people saying, well, maybe we should build on this? Absolutely. Um, you have people at very, very high levels of the government and quite a few people, not, I wouldn't say the majority by any means, but a quite a few people who truly believe that China needs a more stable, real political system, not a medieval system like they have now of, of you know, court infighting and, you know, imperial court politics is basically what you have and what we're seeing at the moment. And what a lot of people believe uh, at the top uh, echelons of the party is that they need democracy. They need something that means you can have transitions of power that don't always destabilize the entire structure. Uh, a lot of people are very cynical about uh, Wen Jiabao, since he's talked a lot about democracy, and people say, well, what does he really mean? But people I talk to who know him, who've met him and worked with him and worked for him, they are quite adamant that he truly is believes in it. But in the current system, he's quite weak and he's relatively isolated. He doesn't have a large power base or his own major faction to back him. He's an almost tragic figure in the sense of he clearly would like, or at least says he would like, to have more democratic reform and to put China on that path, but he seems unable to, to push anything like that through. OK, Jamil, thank you very much indeed for that. To Afghanistan now, and Western hopes of an orderly and honourable exit from Afghanistan are looking increasingly at risk after a series of distressing incidents. There were the widespread riots and violence after revelations that US troops had been caught burning copies of the Quran, And then a rogue American soldier went on a killing spree and murdered 16 Afghans. Meanwhile, NATO troops continue to suffer casualties of their own. The situation in Afghanistan was high up the agenda for talks in Washington this week between President Barack Obama and the British Prime Minister David Cameron. Joining me on the line from Washington is Jeff Dyer, Jeff, how worried are the two leaders? President Obama specifically denied that Afghanistan's looking like the Vietnam War, but that's never a very good sign in itself, is it? Well, I mean, obviously the last month has been a complete disaster for the Obama administration's strategy. I mean, the, the plan for the next two years is to, what they call transition, so that the, the combat forces move from actually 
fighting role to supporting the Afghan forces, training them, helping them to take over the responsibility for security of the country. But that all depends on trust. And we've had all series of incidents that have shown that there's a complete lack of trust. So we had an Afghan soldier killing two American soldiers a month or so ago. We had American soldiers burning the Koran. And then now this latest incident is just a you know, further nail in the coffin of the idea that there can be this huge amount of trust between NATO forces and Afghan forces. So is there a concern that essentially when they leave in 2014, they're going to leave behind a highly unstable country that could actually fall back into the hands of the Taliban? Absolutely, that's one of the main, main concerns. But then there, you know, the, the parallel argument is that that uh, just by having U.S. forces there for so long, that they are a destabilizing force in themselves. So they're galvanizing, uh, you know, the worst parts of the Taliban and creating a target for uh, for people to go after. So, so there's really some, there's really no good answer to this one. But for the moment, they're saying, okay, we stick with the strategy. That's what the administration seems to be saying for the time being. But there are lots of people in the Democratic Party who have been for a long time calling for a swifter drawdown, and they're using these incidents to push that case. And interestingly, in the last couple of weeks ago, some of the Republican presidential candidates have have flipped and have have jumped on that bandwagon as well. And... um... Meanwhile, there's this persistent talk of the need to speak to the Taliban. Is 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 any of that going on? And what's actually the official line on that? Well, the official line is they do need to have some part of the withdrawal process is some kind of political negotiation that would involve parts of the Taliban. But even just in the last couple of hours, uh, it seems the Taliban have put out a statement saying that they're pulling out of all talks um, and that they had just really been interested in it as a way of trying to get some prisoners released from Guantanamo. So that's a, a further blow to the to the uh, to the, the process that the Obama administration has laid out. Now, meanwhile, all this is going on against the backdrop or of of David Cameron's visit to to Washington, uh, which seems to have been all fairly, you know, uh, high profile. That, that the president went out of his way to give British prime ministers what they love in Washington, which is lots of pomp and circumstance and tributes to the special relationship and so on. So, however badly things seem to be going in Afghanistan, the two leaders, at least outwardly, seem seem fairly unconcerned. Absolutely. Um, but one of the interesting things about this trip is usually, I mean, the media at least like to frame U.S.-U.K. relationship as if the the U.K. is the country that's looking for attention, that's looking to to um, to boost the relationship. But in this trip, it was almost the other way around. It was the, it was, uh, the Obama administration that, that really went out of their way to show how, how good the relationship was with the UK, how important it was, to show how important, how well uh, Barack Obama gets on with David Cameron. They were the ones really playing it up. I suspect the reason for that was a lot of that might have been to do with domestic politics. One of Mitt Romney's main criticisms of Barack Obama is that he's been a president who's been much more friendly with lots of adversaries or, or enemies of the U.S., his willingness to engage with Iran, to talk to the Taliban, the reset with Russia, and in the process that he snubs a lot of old allies. Um, so this visit was a, was a way of pushing back against that. It was also allowed President Obama to spend a day being president while the Republican candidates were going around the country uh, attacking each other. So that was another very you know, another useful sort of political attribute to all this. And finally, behind all the um, pomp and circumstance and the politics that you've outlined, was there much substance? Presumably there are these joint security interests, not just Afghanistan, but also Iran. Iran and, and, and Syria as well. I mean, I think with Afghanistan, the 
point would be, you know, the U.S. obviously has the most troops, but then after that, Britain has the second most troops. If it looked as if either of those countries were wavering and were about to announce a swifter pullout, then you know, lots of the other countries involved in the operation would have run for the exits very quickly. They might still do so, but at least at least sort of put a line under it for the time being. I mean, I think on Iran, obviously, I suspect the British wanted to know more about the conversations with the Israelis who were here two weeks ago, what actually was said, what was promised. Uh, try to understand how the administration is thinking about potential military action or not in Iran. So I think those are probably the two main items, and then I'm sure they also wanted to, to um, swap notes on, on Syria as well. Thanks very much, Jeff. Now, one of the concerns about what will happen to Afghanistan after NATO withdraws concerns the fragile progress for women's rights. A call from Afghan clerics for tougher restrictions on women has stoked fears among human rights activists. Matt Green spoke to women's rights campaigners in Kabul who said they're concerned the government may adopt a more conservative stance on women's rights to appease the Taliban in any future peace talks. There's been some concern lately among women about the statement issued by the Ulema Council of Influential Clerics in Afghanistan saying that women shouldn't be allowed out without a male escort and that they shouldn't be able to work alongside male colleagues. There is, of course, a very conservative strand in Afghan society and such statements play well. On the other hand, many people here say that conditions have improved immeasurably for women in the 10 years since the Taliban fell. And they think if things continue in this direction, and they'll have far more opportunities in the future. Why are they why are they disappointed? They're disappointed President Karzai because they say that he is the leader. He is the leader where that the women are looking at him, that he they should get the maximum support from him. And here he stands up and he says that that he accepts that this is a Sharia of Islam. This is not the Sharia of Islam. Islam is a wonderful, wonderful religion that has given right to man and woman equally to both. Yes, we do accept Sharia of Islam, but it has to be the actual Sharia of Islam. Islam never says the woman not to go out of the house or, or not to seek uh, education. Islam says that man and woman to seek education from the day they're born and the day that they die. They say from so so women are uh, uh, disappointed at President Karzai. President Karzai is the father of the uh, nation. He's got to stand up. He is very good, you know, for for the women's right. We we you know they really appreciate him. But I think that you know he's got to stand up. Well, I'm standing in the the center of the campus of the American University of Afghanistan. Here, uh, it looks almost like a, an educational facility you might find in, in the U.S. or Europe. And in fact, it, the, the building is very much modelled on on an old sort of 1960s-style American college. Although there are, of course, snow-capped mountains of Kabul visible over the horizon. What's more striking, perhaps, in Afghanistan is to see male and female students mixing very freely. Um, Many of the women, of course, are wearing headscarves, but but few of them aren't uh, sitting in the the cafeteria and and relaxing, chatting to their male colleagues. 
You can see men and women walking freely together or talking or chatting on their mobile phones. It's a very convivial, relaxed atmosphere here. Uh, the sort of scene that would be inconceivable in uh, many of the more provincial, rural uh, and more conservative parts of the country. Men and women, both of them are humans. Both of them are creatures of Allah. And both of them have the same, should have the same uh, uh, rights and have, should have the same, uh, equal rights. And uh, that's why uh, this uh, equal right... Uh, uh, it, it also mentioned in Holy Quran and Islam that both men and women have the same, the equal rights. Uh, women in here, for example, um, girls, they can go to uh, uh, courses with boys at the same place, but in provinces they're not allowed to go at the same time. For example, in here in Kabul, um, women are sitting at one side and uh, the boys are sitting at the other side in one class. But in Kandahar or in other places, it's not the same. Students have just held a celebration to mark International Women's Day. They've heard from a range of speakers from academia, from the government, and even a descendant of Queen Soraya, who was a monarch in Afghanistan in the 1920s and a famous advocate of women's rights. I managed to catch up with a couple of the female students to ask them what they felt about the state of women's rights in Afghanistan and to ask what the future may hold. What do you want to do in the future with your education from here? Uh, maybe after I graduate from here, after I get my bachelor, I'm going to apply for MBA. Then after, uh, maybe in foreign country, in a broad country. Then after, uh, when I will be back in Afghanistan, maybe I can uh, be a good personality and to have uh, a high quality of business in Afghanistan. What are the sort of changes you've seen in the last few years? Are women getting more confident, do you think? In, I think young, young women. Yes, I think the young woman that I'm teaching, the woman that I'm in touch with, I'm talking about the young Afghan woman, they're very confident, they are eager to learn, they are eager to excel, not only in their personal life and also to, to become somebody, whether it's political, whether it's academic, or whether it's, 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 it's uh, 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 entrepreneurial. So women are trying to do all this. But what I, I, am, I am really, one thing that the girls are always uh, reminding me that they are a little bit afraid is that they don't want the Taliban to come back or the Taliban era to come back. And especially, they are very disappointed at President Karzai. What do you do as a job in the future? Uh, in fact, my uh, major in here is a political science and I want to be a political person in the future. And um, I, I want to uh, help my people. doesn't matter every job that I uh, can get, but I want to help uh, my people um, improve Afghanistan and uh, especially help uh, women and uh, children that they are very poor. I want to help them and I want to let them to go to school and get education. That was Matt Green in Kabul. And that's it for this week. My thanks also to Jeff Dyer in Washington and to Jamil Andalini in Beijing and to the team here in London. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 